Hello and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley. Thanks for listening. Lots to talk about, starting with the Chinese spy balloon that the United States shot down this past weekend. We've talked before about the nation's overall economic picture and how it's been getting better. Figures late last week show things are better than even expert economists thought. The question is, will the public notice? The College Board waffles on advanced placement black studies in deference, I guess, to Florida. Anti-abortion activists now target states where abortion has been skyrocketing. Pro-choice groups may have underestimated their persistence. And finally, Republicans want term limits in Congress. Wait, what? Off we go. First, of course, is the Chinese balloon, spy or otherwise. It's interesting that some media call the spy part alleged, while others, like the New York Times, were less sanguine. The drama began last week as the balloon, Chinese balloon that is, was spotted floating over Alaska. The Chinese, of course, denied that it was spying, saying it was a weather balloon that had strayed badly off course. During the week, there was quite a drama between Washington and Beijing as the balloon traversed the country on a diagonal path from Montana and Idaho south to the Carolinas. When it got six miles off the coast of South Carolina, President Joe Biden ordered it shot down. As you might expect, the Chinese saw the U.S. action as an affront. The reaction is about what you'd expect. Quote, in these circumstances, for the United States to insist on using armed force is clearly an excessive reaction that seriously violates international convention. That's what the statement said. It went on. China will resolutely defend the legitimate rights and interests of the enterprise involved and retains the right to respond further, end quote. So how do you think they'll respond? They could grab an American off the streets of one of their cities, arrest and jail them, then charge them with spying. Happened before. That's usually, however, the trademark of the Russians. They could also make threatening moves toward Taiwan, a major bone of contention in Sino-U.S. relations. Any such move, of course, would create a crisis far beyond the downing of a balloon. There are a few things to take into consideration from an American perspective. The first is whether U.S. military intelligence got it right. From a better safe than sorry perspective, I think most Americans will buy the notion that the Chinese were spying. Whether it was military or industrial spying is yet to be determined. There's talk the military will try to recover what it can from the remains of the balloon. No matter what they find, it must be seen against the backdrop of recent moves by both countries. The Chinese are trying to expand their influence in Southeast Asia by currying favor with Indonesia, a nation, by the way, of 300 million people. In this, the U.S. is playing catch-up. On the other hand, the U.S. is beefing up its presence in the Philippines, ostensibly to counter any Chinese move against Taiwan. China is also trying to expand its presence in the West by opening factories, factories that is, in Mexico. Quite a chess game, one that, I'd bet, most Americans pay little attention to. The fact that Secretary of State Antony Blinken postponed a trip to China over the balloon mess should underscore the seriousness of this whole thing. 
published reports say there were Republican members of Congress who wanted the balloon shot down over land and faulted Biden for waiting too long. However, had he done that, can you imagine the furor that would have erupted if the remnants of that balloon had fallen in someone's house or fallen on someone's land? Regardless, what we have here is a struggle between two different ideologies and two different ways of governance. Both sides think their way is best. I doubt this will all be settled even in my lifetime, but I pray it doesn't end in war. Up next, we talk about the nation's economy. Actually, we did last week, and it's back in the news again. Good news or bad news? We'll tell you. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. The New York Times headline says it all. U.S. hiring surges with a January gain of 517,000 jobs. Even the economic experts weren't expecting this. Not only that, but unemployment also dipped to 3.4%, the lowest level since 1969, which happens to be the year I graduated high school. This is striking because the tech sector, as we mentioned last week, is laying off people at the same time. Growth in wages, by contrast, is moderating. This might explain why consumers are pulling back a little bit on spending. The Federal Reserve is still raising interest rates, And yet, a recent opinion piece by Paul Krugman in the Times highlights the disconnect between what people think about the economy and what it is actually doing. For example, Krugman cites a recent poll that says three-quarters of Americans surveyed think the economy is poor. At the same time, a majority of those same people who were polled thought their own situation was positive. Go figure. The major thing that Republicans have been using to bludgeon President Biden, inflation, is also declining. The overall rate for the second half of last year was 2%. A different survey also indicates a majority of people are hearing negative things about the economy through the media. However, the media is not all to blame. Partisanship, you know about partisanship, Democrats versus Republicans ad infinitum, That also plays a role, with Republicans loath to give Democrats any credit at all for an improving economy. Krugman asks a very pertinent question. Will the public ever notice that the economy is getting better? You have to add to this mix the perception many Americans have that Republicans are better at managing the economy than Democrats are. It's not necessarily true, but as many have pointed out, reality sometimes takes a back seat to perception. Keep in mind, the presidential election is now less than two years away. If you believe Joe Biden will run again, he wants the economy to be the wind at his back. The nation's vital signs are quite a bit better than many other developed nations across the globe. Just ask the UK and other European nations where inflation is still high, where joblessness is Not as bad, certainly, as it has been in the past, but it's certainly at a higher level than in the United States. We don't know how long that good news 
is going to last. Up next, in the face of Florida's refusal to approve an advanced placement class in black studies, the college board has waffled. How badly? Stay with us. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. Last week, we told you how Florida's Department of Education told the college board that its Advanced Placement Black Studies course was deemed illegal under Florida law. They also said it was inaccurate. We are now told the curriculum in question was a draft. The final version, released last week, was at best watered down and at worst a weak-kneed capitulation to those who want to sanitize the nation's racial history. Gone are several authors who have championed critical race theory, the black LGBTQ experience, and black feminism. The Black Lives Matter movement was also purged. Black conservatism has been added as an option. I, for one, have no problem with that. But the elimination of acclaimed black authors and academics like Professors Kimberly W. Crenshaw, Roderick Ferguson, and Ta-Nehisi Coates is kind of off-putting, to say the least. These are not lightweights we're talking about here. What we have is Governor Ron DeSantis, eager to burnish his presidential credentials, trying to dictate how race is taught to black people who are far more qualified than he is to do the teaching. DeSantis and his ilk are quick to cry about academic freedom when someone they agree with is criticized. Yet here he is, trying to rewrite history he obviously knows little about. If he did know anything about it, he'd know that black scholars like the ones I just mentioned, who teach classes at American schools, mainly in colleges, I might add, they demand much in the way of academic rigor. They'd be just as quick to recognize and laud a treatise on black conservatism as they would be on Black Lives Matter if it did not do the requisite research, no matter what their personal beliefs on the subject. Now, you might ask, well, where do you get that from? Let me tell you where I get that from. Professor Leonard Jeffries, who is certainly a controversial individual, a man I consider a friend, however, uh, taught black studies at City College for a number, a number of years. And my older brother, Clayton, actually sat in on one of his classes. Now, Professor Jeffries was considered dogmatic, he was too pro-black, etc., etc., etc. But when my brother sat in on his class, what struck him, and he sat and told me about this, was how rigorous Professor Jeffries was as far as demanding proper research, proper sentence structure, the whole nine yards from everybody in his black studies class. That is what black studies ought to be all about. While we're on the subject of the GOP, it's about time to ask the question, what exactly are they doing with their newfound majority in the House? How about reviving a push for term limits in Congress? They know it always strikes a responsive chord among voters, but they also know that lawmakers are loath to cut off their nose despite their face. The last time they tried this stunt was in 1995 
You may remember this was during Newt Gingrich's contract with America. Back then, some of the same people who signed on to the contract, which contained a clause about term limits, voted against those same term limits. There's no reason to think an effort to pass a constitutional amendment will be any more successful than it was back then. Which means it's the height of gimmickry on the part of the people who really have run out of ideas. If it doesn't pass this time, the GOP will revert to their default position, blaming the Democrats. Fact is, the public already has the means to impose term limits, and it's part of the reason why I have opposed them. The fact is, they can simply vote incumbents out of office. That's term limits. It's true that it doesn't happen all that often, but that's because many political systems in the states, both liberal and conservative, are skewed in the favor of incumbents. Beyond that, even office holders who pledge to stay only one or two terms find the trappings of power too tempting and they renege on their promises. Republicans who want to impose term limits in the House and Senate know this. That's why this latest push is little more than political cynicism. And finally, you thought the GOP was satisfied with the gutting of Roe versus Wade? As they say in the playgrounds, not hardly. This is The Intersection. You're listening to The Intersection of Politics and Culture with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. There are certain states, particularly North Carolina, Florida, and Nebraska, where abortion access has remained relatively open. Not content to have all but eliminated Roe versus Wade at the federal level, the anti-abortion movement has decided to move against these very states. They have seen abortion spike since the end of Roe. The aim of the movement? To pare back the time to get a legal abortion to six weeks. In North Carolina, Republicans are counting on and lobbying Democratic lawmakers with a history of voting with them on the abortion issue. Together, they would be able to override the veto of North Carolina's Democratic Governor, Roy Cooper. Those who are being targeted include two pastors of black churches. If legislators are successful in North Carolina, they vow to do the same thing in Florida and Nebraska. And see, you need to understand what it is they're doing. They are trying to make it more difficult for people, women obviously, to leave red states that have tough abortion restrictions and go to Nebraska and go to Florida and go to North Carolina where the restrictions are much less. Both states have laws, that's Florida and Nebraska, that currently allow abortions to continue. In the case of North Carolina, wavering legislators have been pressured from both sides. Pro-choice advocates should be clear. The opposition will not stop ever. That's right, ever. They want to completely take away a woman's right to choose, period. Too many people, myself included, thought there was no way Roe v. Wade would be gutted. I was wrong. So were the people who thought as I did. While the Congress has little chance of passing a federal ban on abortion, individual states 
are now on the firing line. They will do this in incremental steps. That's their strategy. Go to this state, make it tough. Go to that state, make it tough. So that states, with the few exceptions of places like New York and California, where they'll never get an abortion restriction down to six weeks past ever, they will be the outliers. And then they will work on those particular states. But right now, they're hitting on Nebraska. They're hitting on Florida, who, ironically enough, has a Republican governor we all know about, Ron DeSantis. And they're hitting on North Carolina. Those are the places, those are the spots for them that are the weak spots. And it is particularly ironic that in North Carolina, they are lobbying two black pastors. Now, the reason for this, if you are black, should be obvious. And that is that black Christian pastors are a bit more conservatives, uh, more conservative, as are their congregations, by the way, than the mainstream black population. And they know that Baptist preachers, and both of these folks, I believe, are Baptists, these are preachers who respond to their constituents. And some black people do not want to see liberalized abortion or easy abortion access. So these pastors are being whipsawed. They have voted with the anti-abortion movement on the one hand, and they have voted with the pro-choice movement on the other hand. And that is a rock and a hard place for sure. But the main thing is that people who believe in a woman's right to choose, in a woman's right to choose, need to be on notice that this battle at this point will never ever end. And their loins need to be girded to reflect that simple fact. Thanks so much for listening to The Intersection. The executive producer is Kim Jack Riley, and music is by Tevin Thomas. Until next time, please be well.